Hello, I'm Alex and this is the Northern Guide to Happiness. Welcome to episode five. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with the rest of the podcast team, Kath and Chris. How are we? Very well. Thank you very much. Absolutely fine, because it's raining outside. (laughs) We all know you love the rain, Kath. Stop (laughs) rubbing it in. Not not three afternoons in a row, though. What is going on? What is going on with this weather? It's it's May and we've had hailstones, we've had sleet, we've had torrential rain, we've had thunder lightning. I think Kath's had a word. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With whom? (laughs) With the the weather fairies. Oh, okay, the weather weather fairies. fairies. Oh, well, please, yes, I have fairies at the bottom of the garden. (laughs) <laughs> well i've i've entered the brave new world of um foam soundproofing i don't know whether i sound any different to the to the listeners but we'll we'll soon find out they were probably thinking that there's a quality to the sound of alex's voice it's so much richer and i can't quite put my finger on it now they know do you, do you reckon yeah you're showing the rest of us up as well i hope so i'm, I'm mm. almost professional now i've got soundproofing um <laughs> <laughs> What's everyone been up to? <laughs> I was, I was, all right. So I was judiciously taking a step back there. So I didn't jump in and repeat the fiasco from last week. So I don't know. I'm, Kath, what have you been doing? Oh my goodness, on the spot. Good grief. Yeah. I've been eating too much cake. Oh, there's no such thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. I have discovered cake in a big way. So today's was rhubarb and ginger, Mm. extremely nice, with a very nice pot of coffee. So that was my afternoon treat. Excellent. In the sunshine, and then it started. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's highly relevant, Kath, as we'll discover later after we've heard from today's Mm. guest. So I'm just going to seed that little tease for what's coming next week. Come on then, Chris, what have you been doing? (laughs) Well, I've, I've had the novel experience of a house to myself. Um, for the last couple of days, oh. which has been... Did you en- Did I enjoy it? Has that been for you? I don't know. It's, it's been half the time when everyone's around the house, when I'm trying to work, thinking, oh, I wish I was beside, by myself, you know. Uh, but no, Susan's got a new job. My wife's got a new job, um, which means that she's not working from home anymore. Of course, the kids go to school, wife goes to, to work, and I'm left by myself. It's... Did I, you behave I, yourself? Well, I ate one too many chocolate biscuits and... <laughs> I went, just danced around the house singing Celine Dion songs and you know all by myself and I didn't do that I did not do that I wish you had no I've got a picture now all the rumours are <laughs> false sound is a wonderful thing isn't it soundproofing is a it's wonderful your imagination. thing imagination so, yeah <laughs> your imagination runs right yeah <laughs> oh I feel sad for you being in the house on your own oh it's alright they all came back oh that's, oh, that's yeah, okay yeah, then yeah. <laughs> Panic over. Don't feel too bad for me. <laughs> they, knew, they knew the way back to the house. That's <laughs> where the food is. Like a homing homing device. Yeah. Homing mechanism. <laughs> do, do you have to cook if you're the person in the house? I uh, don't have to. I do, frequently. It was uh, pasta, pasta and a cheese sauce tonight. Well, I've also been baking this afternoon. Speaking of uh, <gasps> cake, I've done a triple chocolate brownie which is currently cooling on top of the cooker so uh that'll be ready for tomorrow don't tease yum, us yum, with yum. that oh, i want some i'll send you a picture later and you that's can no it. good <laughs> it wouldn't last until tomorrow i think i'd be <laughs> staying up late <laughs> on that note shall we introduce this week's guest interview yes let's go for it 
This week, we talked to Zara Ravenscroft, who's involved in coastal restoration work with the Environment Agency. So many amazing things discussed in this episode. Zara talked to me about some of the great new environmental projects taking place around the northeast, including the Wild Oyster Project that's been set up in Blythe and Sunderland. We also talk about the research being done into the link between blue space and well-being, as well as Zara's discovery of sea swimming and her love of living in the city and access to cultural events. So enough of me talking, here's Zara. So Zara, a very warm welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? I'm good. Yes, I'm very good. It's um, It was nice to have some sunshine before the, the hail today. How random was that? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was just getting used to that. The, the sun, you know, putting the jumpers away. But there we go. Lulling us into a false sense of security, I think. Uh, we're, yeah, we're very nearly yeah. into May and uh, yeah, we get hailstones. So yeah, I was not impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> How's your week been so far? It's been a good week. I'm excited because tomorrow, for the first time since lockdown, me and my husband have a couple of child-free hours in the afternoon to go for something to eat which will be the first time just the two of us not working no occasion other than you know we're still married um our children (laughs) (laughs) seem happy (laughs) something to celebrate I think (laughs) I think that sounds like a good enough reason Uh, to celebrate absolutely (laughs) so I'm just hoping that it isn't like a biblical storm or (laughs) snow or We've got the hailstone out of the way. It can't. It can't be any worse, surely. Fingers crossed. I'm not looking at the weather. You know, we've just decided we're going to thermal up, no matter what. <laughs> Go for it and just do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, enjoy that. I'm just wondering for people that perhaps aren't aware of, of what you do and who you are. Could you just introduce yourself for me? Yes. So I'm Zara Ravenscroft. I'm a marine ecologist. And I would argue that I have the best job in the world. I have been so incredibly lucky to spend the last um, 21 years working on the northeast coast on lots of different projects, but primarily around um, marine conservation, habitat restoration and lots of ocean literacy, sort of educating and telling people about um, wonderful marine flora and fauna that we have in the northeast and what sort of wonderful marine fauna and flora (laughs) do we have (laughs) well obviously i'm very biased and this is this is one of the this is one of the challenges of working in the well any water environment especially the marine environment is trying to make the visible visible because you know it's very difficult to connect people with what they can't see but we have some amazing you know, habitats up here. We have um, up at Lindisfarne, Holy Island and Beudle Bay, we have the largest uh, natural seagrass beds 
in England. So huge, really valuable habitat, beautiful as well if you if you see it, and really topical at the moment. Always in the news, seagrass restoration and its its carbon benefits so so that i mean that's just one habitat we also have amazing rocky shores and i'm sure loads of people will have seen recently all the sort of whale and dolphin sightings that everyone's talking about so what does a marine ecologist do well uh, I, i mean i work at the environment agency and the environment agency is an arm's length government body and we monitor the water environment so we collect Uh, water quality and ecological data to give us an idea of the quality of that environment so in terms of the marine environment that is obviously collecting water to to analyze it for nutrients or contaminants but also um, monitoring the extent of salt marsh and seagrass and collecting fish data and invertebrate data so that's all the kind of little um, bugs that live in the mud so so that's that's one aspect and once you kind of assess the the quality of it um, you won't be probably shocked to realize that some of our marine environments have been the the i would say the most impacted by human behaviors over over the last couple of hundred years especially when you look at our tidal estuaries which are especially in the northeast really you know, impacted by the industrial era. If you think about the Tyne and the Weir and the Tees, great industrial estuaries that really powered the sort of industrial revolution, sending coal all around the world, building huge ships. So they've changed, you know, unrecognisably to how they would have been hundreds of years ago. So the next uh, sort of stage in our work, if you like, is uh, restoring these habitats. So quantifying what we've lost and then looking for opportunities to restore the habitats and then all the benefits that these habitats bring which are huge so when you say coastal restoration how how do you go about restoring those habitats is it something that takes time or is it something that can happen quite quickly yes it takes time (laughs) i wish it was quicker (laughs) i wish it was quicker so yeah it's a collaborative process i think it's really important to say it's a collaborative process so it isn't just one person going out and doing the work for many reasons but you need really a great partnership of stakeholders and we're really lucky in the northeast that we have this we have some really committed people to restoring these lost habitats so the habitats we're looking at in the northeast, the ones that have really got a lot of focus at the moment are salt marsh, which you can see in urban areas. If you're walking along the weir, you'll see little pockets. Even if you go in the tyne and you look at the sort of concrete edges, the little plants you can see growing out between cracks in concrete or just above the sort of rocky shore tide line. Quite often these are the salt marsh species. Then uh, we have the seagrass, which I've already mentioned, really valuable habitat. We've lost a lot of seagrass, but it has a very important function. Oyster reefs and oysters. I've learned a lot about oysters recently. Oysters, we don't have um, any existing oyster reefs um, in the northeast. We used to. There's evidence that they formed a really sort of important role culturally, as well as ecologically for people living in the northeast and um and that has been lost for at least a couple of hundred years we have no existing oyster reefs um on the whole northeast coastline and we have partnered with some really dedicated specialists and we actually probably last month installed the first oyster nurseries 
um, into Sunderland and Blythe marinas. So, so we're looking to restore this this amazing habitat, these amazing oyster reefs that used to exist and were so so significant in the lives of people that lived up here. And then the other the other habitat is kelp. So you'll all be everyone will be familiar with kelp. It washes up in the beach. It's got a very important function um, for us. But there are areas where we believe there used to be kelp, and there is that you know it's, it's missing now, and that will be through sort of a legacy of of pollution and human interactions. Oh, the oyster nursery sounds exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And do you know what? I have to say, a little plug for the project. It's called the Wild Oyster Project. So if you go on any kind of social media platform, then they are looking for volunteers. So no experience necessary. But if you want to volunteer, you can actually go down to the marinas. And these nurseries are cages that hang under the pontoons. um, And the cages need lifting once a month. And there needs to be a certain degree of monitoring and um, husbandry. So kind of caring for the, they they kind of sell it as a, it's like the maternity ward in a hospital. (laughs) So you've got all the the mature oysters sitting in there and they're releasing the, the baby oysters, the spat into the sea which we then hope will will be released into the North Sea and will settle down with a little bit of help in the summer with some reef restoration and form their own natural uh, natural reefs out there. So a great opportunity for anybody to get involved um, with that project. So how long will it take before you kind of find out whether it's, it's, it's worked, it's, it's been a success? The, the project's three years and there'll be there's monitoring throughout so we're hoping the first offshore reef will be installed this summer now the reason they have to give them a helping hand is that oyster reefs are made up of the discarded shells from oysters so uh, when an oyster dies it, it it forms part of these huge reefs now these reefs are gone they don't exist but they need that substrate for the little sort of uh, baby oysters to settle on so you have to give them a helping hand by actually either sort of putting in a lot of empty shell shellfish shells don't have, doesn't have to be oysters or you can actually build artificial reefs and then what you would do is put some mature oysters there and they'll send out little signals which will help attract the um the young oysters onto the reef so we'll be monitoring, we'll, we'll be collecting uh, all the data over the three years of the project. But what we really want to do and what the sort of vision is for the northeast is these are little pilot sites. But what would be great is yeah. to extend these. So we want at scale sustainable oyster restoration. And with that and with any restoration of habitat of these habitats brings all the kind of multiple benefits that, that, I, talk, that I, I sort of briefly mentioned before. And that's what we're really trying to quantify because these habitats are, are either um, have been greatly impacted or they've been lost entirely, which means you lose all the, the ecological but also social benefits they bring. So first of all, they, they um, clean the water. Oysters are amazing. They're eco-engineers. They filter thousands of litres of water every day and some great time-lapse um, videos what? on YouTube that you can watch. If you're, if you're bored tonight, <laughs> get on YouTube. <laughs> Type in oysters, <laughs> oyster water quality, and you'll see, uh, that's how I spend my evenings, uh, you'll see how amazingly they clean water. Much better, you know, we, we have great water treatment facilities, you know, the water companies have that cost thousands of pounds to operate. Here you've got little eco-engineers busily filtering all the water. 
Um, and then obviously they, 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 there's a lot of research onto how much carbon they, they sequester, but a whole healthy ecosystem fixes carbon and stores it within that, that habitat as well. They also provide huge um, benefits in terms of biodiversity. So you don't just have oysters, you'll have loads of different organisms living within them, fish sheltering within the reef. So you're creating a really healthy biodiversity and healthy ecosystem. And then also what is really interesting and which we are really excited to receive some DEFRA funding to progress is the coastal flood and erosion benefits of these habitats. Oysters specifically, if you have a large reef just offshore, then that's going to be dissipating wave action. So slowing down the waves and holding sediment in place and really lessening all the impacts from rising sea level and climate change on the coastal communities which is which are really at you know they're frontline communities frontline habitats in the sort of climate emergency with the increased storminess and and sea levels that we're seeing who'd have thought oysters would be so significant so important little oysters i know (laughs) i know (laughs) this uh this small little bivalve you know is going to save us all yeah. I mean, like they beans. are bees yeah. and oysters. That's all we need. <laughs> yeah, I know. Totally undervalued. But this is, yeah, it's it, it's trying to get that enthusiasm and passion across to people is really important mm. because you can't see it. It's really difficult. I think Blue Planet, obviously, amazing series. David Attenborough did so much for focusing people's minds and attention on what lives beneath the water. And lots of the projects that I've been lucky enough to collaborate with all have an element of engagement. And that engagement is a degree of education for communities, but also empowerment. So you're empowering um, communities to become invested and, and understand all these amazing facts and, and about these habitats. So then the, the, the need and the want to protect them and restore them really lives with the people who, who are going to see the benefits from them. You know, it's the people that live on the coast. Yeah, so, yeah. Is it something that you've always wanted to do? Yes, I think so. I remember when I um, decided, I was like, I want to be a marine biologist. And I think I was either, <laughs> um, I mean, that was when I realised I wasn't going to be a prima ballerina or, you know, oh. <laughs> damn. <laughs> um, I remember it was, must have been picking GCSEs or A-levels and I, um and I decided this is, what, this is what I want to do. So it's going to inform the choice of subjects I pick. And I spoke to my dad and he was like horrified. And he, he rang back to tell me that he, he spoke to a lot of people. And, um, and there were only three marine biologists in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to pick a different t- career. <laughs> I still remember that conversation, how ridiculous it is. Says the guy who's a fashion designer. So <laughs> I, uh, luckily that didn't sort of put me off. And I was put really off, lucky. Yeah. yeah, I was really lucky to be uh, old enough, I guess, <laughs> to get into a university where we didn't have university fees. And we could, you know, I, I had a full grant. Those were the so days. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I don't think we realised how lucky we were then. Yeah, so I got to pick a subject that I was passionate about, study it with great lecturers and amazing Liverpool, amazing city. Um, yeah. Very yeah, you must have similarities. Been there around the same time I was there because I was uh-huh. uh, 
I was at Liverpool as well doing Egyptology, very similar to you in terms of, yeah, subjects. There's not many Egyptologists out there. But, uh, oh, that's yeah, what my husband kind of did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny, yeah. So, yeah, a fusion of in my sort of university accommodation was Egyptologists and uh, marine biologists. Great combo. <laughs> Sounds like a great party. Yeah, yeah. A, quite a distracting city to study in, though. Absolutely. Yeah, I can vouch for that for sure. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, very lucky to have had those opportunities. It is tough for people wanting to get into this field now, I think, really difficult. Quite a few of our interviewees on our Geordie guide and our you know Northern guide as well have, have talked about the importance of the sea and the you know the love of being close to the coast and how you know here in the northeast we've kind of got the best of all worlds you know we're we've got a great urban we've got great urban centers we've got a wonderful countryside and then we've got a fabulous coast why i mean you might not know the answer to this but you know why do you think that is why do you think people have such a strong desire and connection to be you know near the sea um, it's a it's a really interesting question. I think um, certainly during the last you know twelve plus months, it's become really evident not just in the northeast, but I sit on some coastal groups, so we've seen it across the country. As soon as lockdown restrictions lift, everybody flocks to the coast, and it's really interesting because prior to COVID, we were. Um, discussing the health and well-being benefits of blue space and comparing mm. it to that of green space so green space going to sort of you know driving up into Northumberland maybe a national trust property and how that makes you feel and comparing it with blue space so vast open blue space whether that is the sea or say a large tidal estuary or large expanse of water and how that makes you feel and there's some really interesting academic research out there which shows that your your well-being is greatly improved when you're you're at the sea well, I mean when you're in nature it's greatly improved but when you're actually in blue space it's it's much higher the, the, the feeling of well-being, much greater, so much higher, much greater. And, and there's actually been some really interesting research where they, they looked at pain. So people who'd experienced, who, who'd recently had dental treatment and then monitored their pain levels, whether they remained in like an urban environment, went to green space or blue space. And in blue space, the individuals appeared to experience less pain. So not only is it well-being, but it has health benefits as well. And I guess it's something we know for, you know, we've known this for for a long time. People go, people have always sort of flocked to the coast for medicinal purposes, if you look at, you know, historically. But we're looking at that now and really looking at, at, at the benefits that can bring to society, especially when we have so many issues around health and well-being and also access as well. Blue space and we found this in, in, in between the various COVID lockdowns we've had, blue space is really accessible for a lot of people. You know, it's, it's usually a lot of blue space you can access from quite densely populated areas, so it's easy to get to. So it's more accessible for a more diverse range of, of people. 
So, so it's great, but what we have to realise is with all these benefits, it also comes the responsibility of managing the impact on the environment of all these sort of hundreds of people flocking to the sea. I think it's brilliant that people want to go there. I think it's brilliant that people experience this wild kind of nature, like the sea it brings me so much pleasure, but I also find it terrifying. Um, it's just, mm. it's you know, the power of it. So I think it's brilliant that people are accessing it. And then it just becomes about how we manage that and how we educate and how we get people to protect it. And, you know, we've all seen pictures of, of sort of play, the impact of people accessing nature, parks, the, the coast and the, the sort of litter that can be left behind. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So what can people do then to help? I mean, other than picking up litter and taking it home, what, what can people do to look after the coastline? Is there anything that people can do on, on a sort of small scale well again this is a really yeah this is a really interesting question and and it's one that comes again and again about how what you can do you know how you can protect the sea how you can how you can sort of contribute to climate uh the climate emergency what what can i do what can i do people are always asking and there's lots of little um lifestyle changes you can make but really what we what we're trying to look at is the sea and and uh, you know the sea has a different value to all of us so for me it's very deep it's a value about you know I'm really interested in the habitats and the ecology and the wildlife that's my value the value to the to somebody else might be it's somewhere to go on a day out it's somewhere to go and have fun value to somebody else might be it's their livelihood you know they depend on it for their uh, you know to live and um, and so it goes on and each one of us will have a, a totally unique relationship with that habitat it's understanding your unique relationship and then what you can do to help protect it. And like you mentioned, litter, you know, not being really aware of how much plastic and consumable products you use, which a lot of them actually do end up in the sea. And once they're in the sea, almost impossible to get out. You know, they're, they're breaking down, they're creating microplastics. Thinking about what you eat as well and how sustainable it is and where your food is coming from, making little changes there, how you, all, all to do with sort of the whole, how you travel and thinking about your your imprint your impact but as well as that there are also loads of ways when restrictions fully allowed to get involved with some of these projects and if you do really have an have an interest to to get out there and, and, and get involved and we've got some amazing coastal partnerships in the northeast with really dedicated passionate people at the heart of them so i really recommend i can reel off a, a few there's the berwickshire and north northumberland coastal partnership the durham heritage coast groundwork northeastern cumbria i mentioned the wild oyster project which is the zoological society of london and blue marine foundation are managing who have i missed seascapes is a great project based on the time to tease and then you have also all the rivers trusts so uh, involved so so many opportunities for you to contact these organizations and get involved whether it be recording wildlife monitoring habitats collecting litter you know lots and lots of different different ways to get involved Fabulous. And I think, you know, again, in, in a few of our podcasts, a few people have talked about the, you know, the power of communities and, and volunteering and getting involved as, as far as, you know, bringing, bringing happiness to, to yourself as an individual volunteering, but also to the wider community. So I think, yeah, that's really, really helpful that people can perhaps get, get signed on to those projects if they want to get involved in, in that way. Um, yeah. I think there's a whole movement around green recovery. So how we recover, and it, it, it's a word that's used, you know, it's being used internationally, but in this country, it's all about green recovery. How do we come out of this 
global pandemic better than, than than how we went into it and already there's been so many sort of behavioral changes and people won't probably go back to how they the norm how they operated before so how do we and we've got a global pandemic going on which is really dominating everything in the news at the moment however outside of that we still have a climate emergency a biodiversity yeah. crisis so how do we integrate that into the recovery plans from this pandemic and how do we look for all the positives and there's so many positives i think that have come out and so much to build on so much opportunity there yeah this podcast is all about happiness does your work bring you happiness zara yes yes it brings me immense happiness i mean i I constantly don't feel like there's enough hours in the day. I um, <laughs> I, I get frustrated by the, the pace. Sometimes I, oh, we, we need to do it all now, but actually stuff is happening at pace, you know. Um, when I reflect on a few years ago and, and the projects we had and the investment we had to where we are today with millions of pounds worth of investment and, and sort of government focus in this sort of area of work, then it, it's it's absolutely huge. So it brings me huge happiness. And I, I'm really lucky. I really love telling people about my work. I love talking about the sea. I love, I've, I'm one of those people, I have to say, who in the last few weeks has, has I've done three now, sea swims at some Oh my goodness. Really, really. No. Early no, I can't. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I did see them and I, I, I kept seeing lots of pictures thinking, oh, well, these people are all crazy. And I've done three and it is addictive. It really is. How, I mean, how, how do you find it then? Yeah, it's addictive. In, in what way? How does it feel? Oh, it's like, um, well, my husband. <laughs> She said to me, I don't think... you your husband. Well, he's like, I don't think I'm on board with you doing this. And I was like, oh, no. You know, I get... I I usually sneak out and I'm back in the house before anyone wakes up. He's like, you're just too happy and annoying. (laughs) You get back and you're bouncing off the walls and, you know, full of energy, even though you've got up at some ungodly hour to go swimming, you know, at sunrise. So I get it. But I'm, I'm also a kind of person that gets really involved in a, in a fad, you know, it's about, you know, I'm really into scuba diving. I'll, you know, oh my God, my life isn't worth living if I can't scuba dive every week. And then one day I'll stop and never do it again. So <laughs> this might be the latest fad. And, uh, and probably next year I'll be excited about something else. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, you know, you, you mentioned there that you, you, you come back bouncing all happy. What's, what's that feeling? What's... When you think of happiness, what do you think of? I think, do you know, I have actually been thinking about this a lot because I was discussing it with friends who've been wild swimming for years, a a lot, you know, prior to COVID. And and what what is it? And I think it's just in that moment when you're stepping into an absolutely freezing sea, it kind of grounds you and it's probably like a form of meditation. So you're in that moment it's freezing you're looking out to sea which is immense huge powerful and it's I guess some form of meditation and I I, you know I've tried I just don't think I have the the patience to be one of those people that can meditate and sit there and find time like oh yeah that looks really good the people who do it say it's really but but this is like an instant kind of hit you know you can't help but focus on the fact that you are so cold and you're walking into the water and oh my god but it kind of grounds you for a moment then you come out 
And the energy level you have, it's like you've just, you know, someone's injected you with eight hours sleep. It's just amazing. You, you come back and you think, oh, God, I'm going to crash this afternoon, try and sneak away from my family for a nap, which is, you know, I've got three kids. Impossible. That's like the dream. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the holy grail, sneak away for a nap. So, um, so yes, the, the feeling is like an injection of kind of eight hours sleep, which I think any of us could, could do with. um and that and it just sort of uh, you know everything it just uplifts your mood for that day and I think the the contrast is and I'm very new to this so I've only done three words so I'm not an expert and I'll be there's lots of amazing books three more than me so (laughs) (laughs) but you run you see and I think you get a real good buzz from running as well and I think sometimes doing something physical even if you're really really tired the benefits are huge. And that day mm. that you do have a lie-in or you kind of have a lazy day, sometimes you feel so much worse and your mood levels are low. But if you actually can have the fortunate enough to be able to get out and do something, it can sort of provide you with that energy to keep going, which has been, I, I must admit, I struggled with motivation in the last 12 months, sometimes really struggled. Yeah. Um, being trapped in a house with three young children and trying to work full-time <laughs> has kind of really been challenging and um so while while we're able to at the moment then I'm taking advantage and trying to get out and do some things just the odd little thing that that kind of does give me that that energy and that feeling of being alive again which I think we probably all struggled in our own ways over the last 12 months with those feelings of like just lethargy and yeah it's funny when you kind of think about what you were doing beforehand and how did we fit it all in you know all the kids after school clubs and as you say Mm. doing things for yourself as well when you can and just yeah just running around going here there everywhere juggling work and all sorts it's just I think yeah this last year I don't know I'm I'm often in my pajamas now by kind of seven o'clock in the evening so I'm like the thought of been going out in the evening I'm like oh no no thank you yeah um I think it'll be hard to yes kind of get back to anything near those levels again and that's not necessarily a bad thing no I don't think I think it's a really interesting I think your podcast will raise some really interesting discussions because what brings you happiness what brings people happiness over 12 months ago for that individual might be very different to what brings Mm. them happiness today and you uh, and that that's changed quite a lot and people have really I know we've really really re-evaluated do we want to go back to how we were before you know exhausted running around I miss the social interactions of people on a personal and work level and I, I feel like that gives you that can kind of sometimes fire you up yeah however do I miss going into an office every day hot desking office no not at all not not you know I I like seeing people outside in open space but I don't miss a a a busy office environment um and there's been some really magical moments you know where we we've have been able to do things as a family and and actually and most of them have involved getting out into into nature and we're really lucky we're so lucky in the northeast that I mean personally I you know I live in in the city so I have everything on my doorstep very very lucky but I can within 20 minutes I'll be at the coast within within not much more I'm at in Northumberland and wild countryside and I think not many people can claim to have that and uh, in other parts of the country and so I think we're incredibly lucky to have that here. I I think we are definitely. What else brings you happiness Zara? 
I think I touched on it just before saying that I, I live in the city and it's it's a constant sort of ongoing debate that we have about living in the inner city because you don't have that that space you have my my husband grew up in the countryside and, and we love going to stay with his mum you know it's idyllic and the children love it so it's that question that balance do you you know are we doing the right thing bringing our children up in a city but then all the opportunities and the cultural uh, sort of wealth in Newcastle is just amazing and I love you know I I've I mentioned what I'm passionate about in work and sort of personal but also I love uh, being able to go and see a band going going to um so we've got some great venues in Newcastle little sort of independent small venues with really interesting arts events usually n- ones that don't cost the world so you know they're they're more accessible great events for kids as well you know my kids chalk is a fantastic organization I've taken the kids to to see some really amazing totally wacky bands you know they've been able to make a mask and whatever so so we just have that and and most of it's in walking distance you know you don't need to travel for hours get in a car and everything's kind of within it really accessible um from where we live so there's just there's just so much and and we've really missed that in the last year and I think we just keep having to ground us and I think you know hopefully this won't be forever and at the moment when stuff does open we want to be able to support all these small sort of grassroots arts organizations again yeah and 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 sort of interact and mingle with diverse range of people you know it's it's what makes life rich isn't it I I, it's nice to, to sit and talk to to people from all walks of life and I think we're really lucky to have such opportunities here and I've had some really interesting conversations recently actually about arts and culture and the role that arts and culture have to play in the climate emergency or protecting habitats because as a scientist we're not necessarily the best people at communicating the work we do and how do you integrate that in with arts and culture and reach more diverse audiences because really that's the success of a project is reaching everyone you know not just the usual sort of suspects which I have to say the people that were engaged in in kind of conservation projects are primarily white middle class so mm. how do you use arts to reach a wider audience totally digress from your question sorry Alex no that's actually <laughs> well actually we we were going to talk a little bit weren't we about being a woman in a stem subject encouraging more diversity within uh, science technology mm. and, and maths careers how yeah. can that be done? And, and I suppose it's just an ongoing thing, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, and I think um, when, I, when I reflect, I don't know if it's the same as you, Alex, when you reflect to school, all of your, and people often say, oh, who is your role model? And you go back to school and all the science teachers were, were male. You go to university, every single 100% of my university lecturers were male. So no female role models at all. Even, you know, TV, David Attenborough, Chris Pack and feel like he's been around forever but there's there's <laughs> lots and lots of male influences brilliant not discrediting them in any way but no female in, and, and and we have seen that change which is fantastic and brilliant so we are seeing that change and in the field that I work in I'm very lucky there is quite a good gender balance the gender pay gap is still a big issue and the environment agency actually sent out a, a message this week sort of for some internal comms at, at saying, you know, that we still acknowledge there's a gender pay gap and this is what we're doing, you know, we, we are addressing it and we're working hard. 
So I'm lucky in, in my field that I think there are a lot of amazing female, strong female role models and, and it's quite well balanced. However, I'm aware in lots of other fields it, it, it isn't. Um, diversity issue at the moment, I think, is around race and how this sort of the um, ecology, conservation, natural sciences, environmental science sector is very much white middle class. And this is a huge problem, I think, because we're we're never going to successfully tackle these global issues from one perspective. And we need diversity in this in this field. And we are not diverse. And personally, I don't think that's being acknowledged to the degree that it should be. I think there's a lot of issues why why it isn't diverse. I think a lot of that comes down to social issues and opportunities and the fact that, as we, we mentioned earlier on, going to university is expensive. So so quite often people, you know, students now graduate with tens of thousands of pounds worth of, of, of debt. So factor in, you've graduated with this debt. Factor in now that to, to really to get a job in um, the sort of natural sciences, you then need a postgraduate qualification. So you might have to do an MA or PhD. So if you do an MA, that's another year um, full sort of intensive taught year. Then factor in that after that, you probably still won't get a degree, a, a job, sorry. So factor in, you've got another sort of year or two of, of voluntary work or internships or you do get that job. So you finally get a job, but it's a, it's a, it's maybe as a project assistant or a project officer. So very much the bottom pay grade, you know, really below the, the, the average um, wage, really, really low sort of minimum wage job. And that's your, you know, you, you've racked up by then tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt. So immediately, you are restricting the diversity because the only people that are able to, to follow this path really are those who have are financially able. And it's a huge, it's a huge issue because we need diversity if we're going to make um, long-term lasting change and if we're going to have an impact and create this community empowerment that we need to, to tackle biodiversity and climate emergencies. So huge issue. But thankfully, it's being talked about more. And, I, and there are some, some great people. Bird Girl on social media. She's um, based in Bristol. If you follow her, she talks brilliantly about integrating. I'm going to get the terminology wrong, but it's visible ethnic minorities into nature and how it's been a very dominated by white middle class experts up, up until now. So really diversifying um, nature writing and making it accessible to groups and and she's really interesting to follow and I think some of the reasons why maybe people from ethnic minority backgrounds may not be accessing nature and connecting with it in certain ways are really interesting as well to think about how they feel or how it feels to be in nature um how safe and how welcomed and again that's to do with the, with the sector being more diverse mm. so I'm probably rambling now but it's, it's a really big issue and I really think that the arts and culture sector are taking it you know really really taking ownership of this and making some great headway however natural sciences I think are lagging behind quite a lot and, and have a lot of catching up to do and as you say, when it's a, a global climate emergency that involves the entire planet and every single person living on it. So, uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thank you, Zara. 
involves everybody and it's also quite often the the communities the more socially deprived communities and there's a correlation there between BAME communities who are most who are most going to be impacted as well so you know everybody has to be in this conversation it has to be equitable so really important debate to have yeah yeah how do you know when you're happy Zara you've you've mentioned the word happiness and you've talked about things that bring you happiness how do you know when you're happy Mm. good question Mm. I know when I'm grumpy is when I haven't had enough sleep (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> one of those people that get really ratty. I need sleep. So uh, how do I know I'm happy? I know I'm happy when I've had a really good night's sleep. I know that I'm happy. I I'm, feel very blessed to have my family around me. So that's my children, my husband, but also I live in the same city as my my mum, my sisters. So that connectivity mm. is really important. So I feel happy knowing that I have all the people around me, you know, close by and that sort of... It's that warm kind of feeling of knowing that even though, you know, we might not have seen each other face to face a lot, um, you kind of have this blanket around you of of this friends and family of, of community that's kind of around you. Yeah, I'm not articulating this very well. Ask me a question about science. No. <laughs> not artic- <laughs> it's really difficult uh, to, yeah, I find... It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult question. It's like when you know, it's, you know, if you haven't seen someone for a long time and then, you know, you, you catch up with them and it's, it's like you've never not been with them, if that makes sense. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't feel awkward mm. and there isn't that, you know, weird feeling that you haven't seen them for a year. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's a hard one. Yeah, it's that, it's that buzz that you get from from chatting to somebody as well. And I think we probably all struggle when you first saw people after this second lockdown, you'd see somebody, oh, hi, how are you? All right, what have you done? Nothing. And they have <laughs> and an awkward it. silence of, <laughs> yeah. oh, God, I've forgotten how to communicate. What do I say? I've forgotten how, I've forgotten how to interact with humans. But then it, you're right, then it comes back. And then you have a brilliant sort of interaction and you come away and you feel full. I think that's the feeling. Maybe my, the happiness to me means feeling full, full of what? I don't know, but full of, you just you just come away and, and, and yeah, you feel enriched and um, it doesn't matter whether that's, you know, bumping into somebody in the park or uh, we haven't really done any socialising recently, but previously socialising, or just, you know, those little human interactions that make you feel full, make you feel happy, an interesting conversation, hearing someone's news or non-news is just, yeah, that, that's what sort of makes you happy. I like that description, yeah, feeling full, full of joy, full of, yes, richness, whatever that may be. Thank you so much, Zara, for for talking to me today. I think I was I was blown away when you told me in our pre-recording chat about that kind of correlation with blue space and well-being. I thought that was that was really interesting and kind of yeah makes sense when you then speak to people on on the podcast about their desire be near the coast and why it, it kind of makes them feel good. Um, mm. And yeah, it was great to hear about all the local projects as well that are going on in the northeast. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to check out the uh, the oyster project and all of the other ones that you you mentioned as well. They all sound sound brilliant. 
So much going on. Yeah, I've probably missed out. That's only a snapshot. There's so much going on. Um, which, is, yeah. which is great to hear as well that in the northeast that, yes, there's all of this stuff going on and it's all it's all good work. So many dedicated people who are really passionate up here. And I think um, from anybody visiting the northeast, that comes across really strong and that desire up here just to get on and and get it done which maybe doesn't exist everywhere around the country we probably assume it does but just to you know we've identified an issue we really want to do our best and work together and try and solve it and try and get things done which is a fantastic atmosphere to work in it really is and I think it's probably one of the things that um, the northeast is is renowned for and and should feel very proud of having that real collaborative philosophy well thank you very much Zara and uh, nice to talk to you thanks Alex I really enjoyed it thank you thank you so that was Zara what did people think she's a very enthusiastic person isn't she she is yeah fantastic <laughs> they, um, I, was, I was with her every step of the way even though I didn't fully understand the field that she it's not a field really is it it's a lot of water <laughs> it's very wet field <laughs> yeah. sorry that that one wasn't so it was absolutely fascinating because she started off with the oysters and as a historian I think of oysters as being the staple food going back hundreds and hundreds of years when they were readily available and then they became this iconic desirable, expensive food. Um, so it was, it was absolutely fascinated when, when she went through all, all of that process. And the idea that we're a nursery, a nursery for October. I know, I know. <laughs> it was just, I had the idea with little nappies on. And, <laughs> you know, but I think that's because my, my daughter's a midwife, so maybe it was just, as I say, this is totally stream of consciousness. But... Quite coincidentally, I've been, um, I had a book recommendation about octopuses. <laughs> and apparently, octopuses can get their own back and they're very intelligent creatures. So they can actually, if they're put into an experimental environment, they can learn what the scientists are trying to achieve and they can fight back. So on the one hand, I was listening to oysters and then in the back of my mind was this um, this amazing stuff about octopuses and it made me think, nature's such an amazing thing, isn't it? And we think we're superior, but actually, I think we're not, we ought to be a bit more careful. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> nature, nature is a wonderful thing, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Kat, all, yeah. All of, the, all of the little babies, yeah. <laughs> So that reminded me you, of, yeah, that, that, that talk about uh, oyster nurseries reminded me of listening to a tape of uh, the poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter, mm-hmm. which we listened to in the car, um, which actually is really triggering. It's, I don't know if anybody else knows that the poem, about what happens to the oysters in the end of The, the Walrus and the Carpenter, but uh, I'll, I'll leave people to discover that for themselves if they don't already know it. Um, but uh, man, what listening, listening to Zara was great. It's lovely listening to somebody talk about their job when they really, really love their job. I mean, really love yeah, it. Um, it really came across, didn't it? Oh, yeah. totally. So, yeah, um, 
real hat off to Zara there. Um, I'm glad you glad I'm glad you found your vocation. Um, and she was she was very good as a sort of careers advisor, wasn't she? Mm. Uh, you know, go for it and really give it a try. And, yeah, and sort uh, of um, speaking really clearly about you know the the issues about facing STEM subjects at the moment with with diversity in particular um, was was a real kind of call to action there. So I was really glad that uh, really glad you said that. Um, but overall, yeah, the whole thing about what she was talking about blue space and. You know, getting near to the seaside is absolutely, absolutely right. It's sort of cold, cold back to the, just this thing you've got in your head about, yeah, the, the, the restrictions are relaxing. Let's just get to the seaside. Well, why the sea? Um, it's quite often very windy and blowy and cold <laughs> right here, but you still go because it's lovely. And uh, particularly if you're getting into the water like, uh, like she was. But it just reminded me of all those holidays that we used to have um, going rock pooling. In fact, the last time we went rock pooling um, was, I can't remember which birthday it was. It was my daughter's birthday and we took them to St. Mary's Lighthouse. And I don't know whether they're still doing it at the moment, but they did a rock pooling party for her. So we kind of all went out with our buckets and our nets and we collected whatever we could find. Tons, tons of really interesting stuff. And then we took it all back to, took it all back to the lighthouse and um, somebody a little bit like Zara kind of sat everybody down we all had a look at what was in each other's buckets and talked about the natural history of it all and it was beautiful beautiful day and then we had fish and chips by the lighthouse and it was just astonishingly good so yeah we are so lucky we, aren't we, we are. to have such a fantastic coast yeah, around here yeah and when she was explaining all of that you know it just seemed to make perfect sense when we've spoken to so many other people on the the geordie guide episodes about this just desire yes to be by the sea um it's it all kind of fell into place didn't it all of those people talking about you know the power of the sea and i think she explained that really well and is um, it is it that, that there are a lot of people that go swimming in the sea now or is it just that we happen to find them to talk to on our podcast it's like there's only about five or six but they've all had podcast episodes because it seems to We're be a recurring to them, theme clearly yeah yeah i, I I loved her description of how it feels like, you know, it feels that like you've been injected with eight hours sleep. And, uh, <laughs> I thought that was a great description. <laughs> yeah. And yet you, you also noticed that the, the word that she used to describe the feeling of happiness, which was full. And I, I thought that was yeah. really interesting, a really nice way of putting it. Actually, quite, quite unusual. But yeah, it's yeah. full to bring. And following with... on from that, when, when she, so she was talking about the fullness and then she was talking about small things, mm. so it was a lovely. It's a lovely. A small thing can make you feel full of happiness, mm. and I thought, "Wow, that's wonderful! Mm. I really like that." Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kath, Chris, and thank you very much, Zara. Another fabulous yeah, interview so. for our Northern Guide to Happiness. If you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we would love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidestohappiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be back spreading more joy and happiness around the North East thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle Covid Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. 
I'm going to hand over to Chris now, who's going to tell us what we've got in store next week. Yes, and I'm going to make good on that clue that I dropped at the start of the uh, start of the episode. Um, yeah, we were talking about cake. We've talked about oysters um, and, uh, and other things. So it, we have a food theme. We're going, going all out on the food theme next week, food and drink, uh, because I'm going to be talking to Chris Jewett who is the founder or one of the founders of uh, Food and Drink Northeast, which is a community and trust company that seeks to bring together uh, local business owners and experts who understand food and drink, particularly in the Northeast region, um, which I think is just going to be great. So uh, tune in and you will hear me ask questions like this. I mean, a lot of people that we've had on the podcast have talked about kind of twisty career paths and not ending up where they expected they were going to be or they didn't have a kind of clear picture about where they were going. feels like... Even if you didn't realise that there, there was a place that you were aiming for where, I don't know, you're going to be happy, but the getting there was an experience. And hear him give answers like this. I'm, tr- I'm trying my best not to be abstract, but it's kind of like <laughs> what I said earlier about always having a sense of direction, of knowing where I wanted to get. That's how I was never concerned with leaving uni or leaving college. I, I always knew that. And it, and it was helpful that I had, a, I had helpful parents like that. My mum was always very supportive in that she would say Try your best at whatever you do, hmm. but fundamentally, if you're not happy, don't do it. Don't yeah. don't cheat yourself and don't cheat the people that you're working with. I still hold that principle today, you know, and, hmm. and that can be perceived, you know, for a for a forty-something man, can be perceived as quite reckless. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one because food and drink is one of my favourite things. So, uh, looking yeah. forward to that one. Thank you. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness so far. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. <laughs>